Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Let's, uh, let's go in our Bibles to Amos chapter 4, 5, 4. Amos chapter 5, like I said, yep, chapter 5. Um, I, have, I have studied this passage. <laughs> I want to reassure you on that. Um, uh, a couple weeks ago, last week actually, I shared in my brother's church. They were having pastor appreciation. He has been pastoring there 29 years now. And so uh, that is really great. The church before him and Sonia came, I don't think they ever had a pastor for longer than five years. Um, which I think is interesting, too. But he's been there 29 years. The church is 89 years old. And so next year, there'll be one-third of the church's time. They'll have been pastoring there. And uh, last week, they they do it differently. They do their worship service, and then they do Sunday school afterwards. That's revolutionary, isn't it? Never heard of such a thing. But that's what they're doing. And so in Sunday school, I shared uh, elements of this message that I want to share today with them. And I think it's really important. Uh, it's a really important principle for Christian living to understand that God is with us wherever we go. That you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Will you help me preach to your neighbor and tell them you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? All right, good. I hear the murmurings of preaching going on out there. That's great. Uh, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and and then say to yourself, self, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. And because you're a biped, that means you walk on two legs, uh, everywhere you go, you take your temple with you. Isn't that phenomenal to know that the temple of the Holy Spirit goes wherever you go? Holy Spirit goes wherever you go. God's presence is with you wherever you go. I know that's not, that's probably not as profound as, uh, it doesn't seem as profound as it really is, is what I'm trying to say. But uh, from this message today, we hear, we hear something like this in the, the Old Testament. In the 1990s, when I was going to Bible college, God was doing something in a church in Pensacola, Florida. Anybody heard of that, the, the Brownsville Revival? Okay, So there were some really interesting and cool things that were happening there. And it started on Father's Day in 1995. Uh, some of you will feel like that wasn't that long ago. Others will feel like that was a lifetime ago. Some of you will be like, I wasn't even born yet. And so whenever that was, I was in Bible college at the time, uh, forever that's worth. And there was a lot of reporting of salvations that were happening. I think I read somewhere about 200,000 people gave their hearts to Christ during that time. Uh, there were healings that were taking place, manifestations of the Spirit, um, people dedicating themselves to true holiness. I heard of one uh, story of a, a lady who was going down there for a Playboy shoot, and she went to that church and became a Christian. And uh, turned her life around. And so really cool things were happening. Uh, they had people dedicating themselves to true holiness. And they were they were having church six days a week. So let me ask you, are you ready for revival? Six days of church, six days a week of church. Uh, and it lasted about five years. Millions of people went there to be a part of what was going on. And I think God was doing some genuine things. I still, I still listen to the music from that revival and am blessed by it. Uh, and many were encouraged during that time wondering if this could be the start 
of the last great revival. And I want to tell you something maybe sounds surprising, but I hope not. I hope it wasn't because I want it to be much more than that. Don't you? I want God's uh, coming in a last end time revival to be something that, uh, that shakes the planet, you know. And I want you to know that I, I didn't endorse and don't endorse everything that came out of Pensacola. There are some things which don't ring true to me, to Scripture. And there are things in other revivals that are similar to that. But God instructs us to sift out the chaff and to hang on to the good stuff. And so we need to do that. If you're, if you're reading Christian books, you need to sift. Don't just take everything in as gospel fact. Okay, make sure you're sifting and aware of that. When I'm I'm preaching here, I encourage you to sift. If you're not hearing the voice of God in it, and you're recognizing something doesn't ring true to Scripture, um, then I hope you'll sift and hear what good there is that God has. To say. I don't plan on giving you any chaff, but sometimes it slips in there. So God instructs us to do that. So alongside. Um, the real thing that God was doing, there grew up kind of an idolatry about the place. I'm talking about the Pensacola revival, the Brownsville revival. There was this idolatry that started to grow up around it. And that's probably not true of everybody, but uh, during uh, my time at Bible college, people would come back. They'd gone to visit. And you started to hear these things like, I just, I need to go down to, to Brownsville. I need to go down to Pensacola and experience the presence of God. And it was as if they had substituted God for the place, or the place for God. And so something uh, had changed. And they would say, we have to go there and, and bring it back. And it seems uh, to not have occurred to people that what they really needed was God and not just the spirit of revival. Do you understand the difference? Uh, we understand God brings a uh, uh, desire for revival. He brings a change in our lives, but... Uh, some people want revival because of the emotional thing that goes on there more than they want the true presence of God. And I, I'm certain that we don't always have to make that distinction because sometimes one goes with the other. But if we're to divide it with a thin razor and decide, do we want the spirit of revival or do we want God? What are we going to choose? Because if we're really being revived by God, if God's really bringing fresh life into his church and into Christians, we're going to want more of God. That's really what it's supposed to be about. But that didn't occur to many people. And often, when God begins to do something real, there are people who want to make a program out of it and package it up and then uh, take it somewhere and replant it or maybe go there and take some of that revival anointing and bring it back to where they live. And what people found is that they could imitate the form, but not the reality of what God was doing in that time and place. You can mimic the form, but it's God that has to do the reality. You know what I mean by revival? This is where God comes, and there's fresh life to the church, and he's beginning to move among his people, and we're truly, fully surrendered to what he wants to do with our lives. We're excited about it. We're passionate about it. And I don't mean that it's jumping up and down passion. That may be, if that's your personality, but to me, true passion is a drivenness to serve God with all that you are. And some people are emotional about it, and some people aren't. Some of the best Christians I know are not emotional people at all. But they're sturdy. You can count on them. They're going to be there. They're going to give their all. And if it required, they would lay down their life for Jesus because they love him so much. 
So that's what we want. For all who desire uh, for God to move in our lives and covet revival for ourselves, we need to know that great moves of God don't come from places. They come from God, who's personal and desires hearts to turn to Him. Let's look at Amos chapter 5. I'll let you know that um, if you, you want to know where this kind of fits in biblical history, you'll know that Isaiah and Micah were prophesying in the southern kingdom. And uh, let's go ahead and put our scripture up there on the screen. Uh, Micah and Isaiah were prophesying in the southern kingdom in Judah. And at the same time, Amos and Joel, or just prior to that, Amos and Joel are prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel. And they're kind of, they're kind of going through different things, but a lot of times they're their uh, history runs parallel to one another, that they're up and down in their relationship with God. As the kings went, normally that's how the nation went. They would follow after them. And if uh, the king was leading them like, like uh, Ahab was in the north into idolatry, they became an idolatrous nation. And in the south, Manasseh led them into idolatry. They became an idolatrous nation. And sometimes to the point where even when the king repented like Manasseh, it was too late. The nation was already headed down that spiritual path, and it was hard to turn or correct that ship after it had begun to sail. So Amos, writing in the north, you need to know that even though it was more wicked than Judah at the time, they were also more prosperous. I can't figure that out, but that's exactly how it was. They were more prosperous. They had a lot of money, and there was a lot of divide between the Rich and the poor, there wasn't a middle class to speak of. And so Amos speaks out against social justices, injustices that are taking place and, and how people can practice a form of religion but not really be truly dedicated to God. And if there's anything that we need to hear this morning is don't have only the form, we need to have the reality of true religion. Religion is not a bad word unless it means empty form. But when we truly love God, by the way, James mentions true religion, and he's concerned that we have it in the book of James. So it's not a bad word. It's when we have only the form and we don't have the reality, and that's what Amos is after here. The reality ought to not only make us dedicated to God, but it also ought to affect how we live in public, how we treat our families, and how we treat one another. Are you with me? Okay, so let's, uh, let's read our passage here. This is what the Lord says to Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them and Bethel will have no one to quench it. Just a kind of a historical note here to help us understand this passage. When he says the tribes of Joseph, what he's doing is he's using this figure of speech that means he identifies the whole by a part. So the, the biggest part of the northern kingdom were the tribes of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so when he says Joseph, basically he's saying the northern kingdom of Israel, a fire will sweep through there and devour you unless you respond to God in the appropriate way. So this is a, a judgment passage, and I'm not asking for God to bring judgment on us, and I don't think he wants to bring judgment on us. I think he would truly love for us to have real, dedicated religion, uh, a life that is pursuing after him. But this is 
one that happens to name the, these different cities. And these cities, what's significant about them is that in their history, in his, Israel's history, they were shrines of places where God had done magnificent things. So it, in my memory, it would be something like uh, Brownsville, where people had gone. I'd never gone to Brownsville, but people had gone there, and they said God did something significant there. But if we went to Pensacola in search of God, because we heard the Brownsville Revival was there several years ago, several many years ago now, we would come away disappointed because we're not going to find God in that place. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's not, he's not in the place. We seek him as a person. And so this was the challenge is that Israel was wanting to look backwards and we can die looking backwards. You see, all that God has done for us comes from remembering the, uh, the faithfulness of God in the past, but we have to seek Him today. We have to seek Him today. We need to remember the past. Sometimes we fall into these uh, extremes. Like, I don't know why we do this, but what we often do is that we'll hear, we'll read a passage that says we need to, we need to be looking forward and not looking back. Okay, so like Paul in uh, Philippians 3 uh, forgetting what's behind, I press on. And we get on this rant of, we, oh, we've got to look forward. We've got to look forward. We've got to look forward. And yes, that's true. But you realize there's the balance side of it is that we've got to remember also what he's done. As we receive communion today, what's the uh, command? I used to look at the King James English on the front of our communion table and wonder, what did it mean? This do and remember. What does that sentence mean? This do in remembrance of me. That's not the right word order for, for how we, we speak today. But we're doing, we're doing communion. We're taking communion in remembrance of what Christ has done. So there's a sense in which we need to look back. But we can't live there. We've got to live in light of what God has done in the past. But we need to experience him now. Come on, isn't that true? We need, we need him now. We need to appropriate all that he's done for us in the past so that we can live, for, uh, live with faith in fresh encounter with him today. Uh, I think this is a, an interesting passage. It's kind of exciting. But we, we die when we look backwards and only look backwards, and we don't go forward with him. And it may be that the past seems more glorious to us than today. It may be that... Uh, we, the past was more glorious, not just that it seems more glorious. Maybe it was more glorious, but we still cannot live there. The glories of Israel under the reign of David came, uh, became unmatched at any other time in Israel's history until Jesus set his foot on planet Earth. David had, saw the pinnacle of it. Israel was always trying to get back there. But what they needed to do is they needed to look forward. The son of David was coming, and that was going to be far more glorious Remember, I love that passage in Isaiah when it, it's a Christmas passage to us a lot of times. Uh, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali have, have, have lain in darkness all these years, but it will see a great light. And what it was doing was looking forward. This is the same uh, group of people, the, the same northern kingdom that would go into exile because they refused to listen to Amos' word. They would see darkness. But once again, they would see light because their best days are ahead of them when Jesus walked the hills of Galilee. <laughs> Think of that. Man, they had a time when they were very godless, but God himself would come and put his feet down on their earth and ours. So sometimes we look back, but we need to realize we need a fresh encounter with him, with him today.
I think if there's some principles that we can glean from this passage right away, the first one is don't seek places, seek God. Don't seek, seek places, seek God. Uh, the God of yesterday and the God of that place is still the God of here and today. Okay, Aren't you glad for that? If not, if the God of Israel is only found in Israel and only yesterday, what are we doing here? Singing our worship songs. I think, I don't know how you woke up this morning, but I woke up thinking we might have a fresh encounter with God in this place. How about you? And so if that's the case, we understand that what happened there was glorious, but what is happening here is glorious too. You might not even feel it. Sometimes we don't feel the glory that's there. Just ask, uh, well, we'll come to that in a moment, but let me give you a, a foretaste of it. When Jacob goes to Bethel and he lays down to sleep, he's fleeing from Esau. He wakes up. He has a dream of the angels ascending and descending on the ladder to heaven. Do you remember that? Okay. And then he wakes up and he says, the Lord was here and I didn't know it. And what that says to me is we don't always feel the glory that we're in at the time that we're in it because we're distracted, because we don't have our eyes on the right thing, because for whatever reason, God has kept that uh, from being an emotional thing for us, or maybe it's just not an emotional thing. It's only an emotional thing when we wake up to the realization of what it is. But God's presence is glorious, and nevertheless, sometimes it's not perceived. He tells us, don't seek places, don't seek God, and uh, do seek God, sorry. Can we edit that out in the podcast? And then don't seek the past, seek his present, seek him now. All the significance of yesterday will turn into dead nostalgia if we try to live there, unless we appropriate its lessons to our lives today. And an example of this is, for me, when we like a certain worship song. Okay? Anybody had a powerful experience with God while singing a certain worship song? Like that song was glorious. Okay. Has anybody ever tried to go back and play that song again and recreate that moment? Okay. okay, you know what I'm talking about. And you find that it pales a little bit in comparison with what happened before. Like when I was in college, we were singing Ancient of Days. And I love that song, and I still love it. But I'm not going to create the nostalgia and the feeling of what took place back then. Because this is a different moment. God's doing something uniquely now. And I'm a different person. Right? So something which meant a lot to us before, if we try to go back there, we're not going to have the same experience. To talk about the significance of these places, we read the passage. Let's look at a map real quick. Are you all in favor of doing that on a Sunday morning just to understand where all this is? I'm going to step out of the way here and take a look with you. All right. Um, Israel is the northern kingdom. At one time, the whole, the whole thing was called Israel because they were the descendants of Israel. And then a split happened. We know the year was 931 B.C. under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. A split took place. And, the, and two tribes went to the south, and uh, nine others went to the north, and then there was a tribe that was scattered between them, the Levites. Okay. And so the tribes of the north took the name Israel, and the tribes of the south took the name of the larger tribe, uh, Judah. It was Judah and Benjamin, but they went by Judah. And so Amos is prophesying to Israel, the northern kingdom. They have a different king. Their capital is Samaria, the southern kingdom. Their, kingdom. their capital is Jerusalem, and they have a different king. But Amos is prophesying to these people. They're very wealthy, many of them. 
And he's prophesying to them, and he said, don't, don't go to Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't go to Beersheba. Um, you're not going to find them. Don't seek those things. Seek me. Okay, you've seen that map. We can pop that off there. That's fine. Uh, I want to talk about these places for just a moment, then we're going to make some application, and we'll be ready to go for lunch. Everybody happy with that plan? So the significance of these places, first, Bethel. Bethel is the place of the promise of blessing. So we find Jacob visits there when he was a homeless wandering. He swindled his brother out of the birthright, and then later he swindled him out of the, the blessing. Uh, and uh, he tricked his father into giving him the blessing. Do you remember what that was about? Joe kind of hinted at this a little bit in the call to worship, uh, is that there was a lineage that was going to go through Jacob. It was the lineage of the Messiah. Okay, And so whoever, whoever Isaac blesses, they're going to receive the lineage of the Messiah. They're going to be in that line. And so Jacob says, my, or his mom actually says, your dad's about ready to bless. One of you boys is going to bless your older brother. You better get in there and make him think that you're Esau. So he does. He gets on some fur on his arms because Esau is a little bit hairier. And uh, maybe he talked with a gruffer voice. I don't know. But uh, he tricks his dad into giving him the blessing. And Esau finds out about it and says, I'm going to kill him. It's the last thing I do. I'm going to kill Jacob. So Jacob says, this is a fine time to take a vacation to see some family. And so he gets out of town real quick. He comes as far as Bethel, which you saw on the map there. And uh, while he's at Bethel, he lays down on a rock as a pillow and has a dream of the angels ascending and descending. And he realized this is the place where God is. I didn't even recognize it at first, but he's here. And so he calls the place Bethel, which means, anybody know? House of God, house of God. So he goes from there and... uh, uh, he, at that time he goes through there, he has no certain future. Uh, he awoke with the consciousness that the Lord's in this place. And then Jacob came again after he spent the 21 years in Paddan Aram with his uncle Laban. That's a long vacation, 21 years. And this time he has his family. And this time God, uh, he encounters God again with this fresh encounter and he receives a blessing from the Lord. And he was reminded that he had a new identity because he had previously wrestled with God. And at Bethel, God reminds him, you're no longer, to, you're no longer just Jacob. Sometimes Jacob's still called Jacob after this. But you're no longer just Jacob. You're Israel, one who wrestles with God. I want you to know your identity is wrapped up in me. This is what God is saying. And so he re- is reminded of that. And, the, and Bethel is the place of promise and blessing. It was there that God revealed himself to him. It tells us in Genesis thirty-five fifteen, Jacob called the place where God had talked with him, Bethel. But Israel was not to seek Bethel. This is later now, many centuries later. And they continue to go back to that shrine and remember that they're Israel. They're significant. We're called. We're blessed. We're all good with God. Because we go to the place and remember an event that happened and offer some sacrifices, whether they were meaningful or not. We don't know. We can only assume they weren't. But they're going through kind of motions of recognizing their religious identity. But there's, no, there's nothing in the here and now of, of, of Amos' day that would suggest that they're truly followers of God. But they have a history and they want to go and remember that history. 
Can you see how that could be a problem? Is just remembering who we were, remembering what God has done, but not appropriating it to our lives today, not living as, as people under the true identity of God, that would be a problem. We can't just remember what God has done. We need to live for God now. And that's exactly what they weren't doing. And so he says, don't go to Bethel. He says, uh, and let's uh, read it again here, verse 4, seek me and live. Don't seek Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't journey to Beersheba, for, get, for Gilgal will go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire, and it will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. So don't seek that. You need to seek God. And I would encourage you to think about what is your Bethel? What is the place that we would recollect? And I want to ask you, is, is it just a shrine that we go to? Are we living in light of that with fresh experience today? That's a real challenge to us. Okay, the second uh, place he mentions is Gilgal. And this is the place of entrance into the blessings of God. If, if you're interested in this history, uh, you can read about it. When Joshua leads the children of Israel into the land, the place that they set as their home base when they go conquer Jericho is Gilgal. It's the place where after coming out of the promised land and it seems that there's kind of a special dispensation God allows them. They come into Gilgal and they circumcise all their males, right? So Gilgal doesn't have a, a good <laughs> connotation for some of those guys. But I think that uh, it's interesting. This is the place of entrance. This is the place where when they cross the Jordan River, do you remember how they crossed the Jordan River? They put uh, their ten little piggies into the Jordan, and God divided the waters, held the waters up, and they walked across on dry ground. And then Joshua asked them to do something afterwards. What did they do? What was it? Gather stones. And, and what did they do with those stones? Anybody know? They stacked them, and they raised a monument. And anybody know what the monument's called? Ebenezer. Come thou fount of every blessing. You remember that song? We sing about that. Here I raise mine Ebenezer. This is our memory stones of something glorious that God's done. And Joshua told the children of Israel, anytime you come past here and your, your kids say to you, how did those rocks get on top of each other like that? You can tell them about how God miraculously brought you through the Jordan at flood stage and brought you into the promised land. And so Gilgal was a place to remember God's miraculous entrance into the blessings of the promised land. So now Israel is partaking of the blessings of the promised land, but they're not living for God. And I would challenge us, I challenge myself, don't get so wrapped up in the blessings you forget about God. Sometimes that's the easiest thing to do. When God starts blessing and things are going really well, it's the easiest place to backslide. Is when it's going well. It's just after a great revival. It's just after God has brought your spouse to salvation. It's just after you've seen some kind of healing take place that we can start to let our guard down and say, now we're in cruising mode with God. We don't really have to live for him because he's done it all. He gets all the credit and all the glory, but he asked for our part. Okay? So they came into Gilgal. Gilgal uh, means something like rolled away. and It was here that the Bible says that God rolled away their reproach. And it was also at Gilgal that manna stopped right? They didn't have to eat man anymore because now they could enjoy the fruit of God's blessing, the fruit of the land. All this took place at Gilgal. And so it was a place of 
remembering. It was the shrine which proclaimed the inheritance and possession of the promised land. And, and they may be trying to cling to God's blessings, but they weren't clinging to God. They weren't going after God. And I, I find that to be really interesting because the very thing that's going to happen to them, uh, can I tell you where it goes from here after Amos prophesies? They don't listen. Are you surprised? They don't listen. And so the very thing that happens is God takes them out of the land. The northern kingdom, the Assyrians come in and conquer them. They kill a lot of people. They take others into captivity, and they resettle the land with people that, other people that they've dominated. They bring them in. And it creates this hybrid breed of Israelite called the Samaritans that dwell in this land, in this area. And so Israel, because they refuse to listen to God, they lose their identity. It's not enough to go to Gilgal and think about how God's given us all these blessings. We have to live in obedience to him now with the blessings of God. I think this is really good preaching. I hope you do too. Not because I'm preaching it. The word is good. It's, it's important for us to hear. So then Beersheba, that's all the way in the south. I, I think of this every time when I hear Beersheba. You know, we talk about in the United States, and it kind of should be frustrating to us as Alaskans because we live further west than L.A., right? But when you describe the United States going from coast to coast, you talk about New York to L.A., right? Have you heard that before? From New York. It's even in uh, the song, God Bless, is it God Bless America or... What is it? Yeah, proud to be American. There you go. From New York to LA. I'm completely off base. Sorry. I'm a little scattered this morning in some things. But we think about that. In, in Israel, it would have been from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. So they, that's how they described the length of Israel was Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. And something significant happens there. There was a repeated experience of the presence of God by all three patriarchs at Beersheba. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise, uh, God is with you in all that you do, came to each one of them. Abraham hears from the lips of a pagan king, your God is with you. In Genesis 21, verse 22 through 23, that, that should be easy to remember. And then Isaac came to Beersheba a little bit later on, and he received a night vision where God announced himself as the God of Abraham. Remember how sometimes we hear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, when you're Isaac, you only hear, I'm the God of Abraham. Because that other part hasn't been established yet. I'm the God of Abraham. And he says, fear not, for I am with you. And then Jacob, when he was in, uh, when he was in Egypt, he stopped, he went to Egypt. Remember, they, they discovered Joseph's down there, and they got to go tell their, their dad how bad they've been, and that their brother's really alive. And so they get him and they bring Jacob down to Egypt. And on the way out of the promised land, he stops at Beersheba. And God says to him, don't be afraid, I will go down with you. So in each of these, Beersheba is the place where God promises, I will be with you. I will be with you. And so it seems to me that this is the promise of the shrine of Beersheba, is that God is with you. And they want to go think pleasant thoughts about how God is with us and and all that we do, and, and he will always be with us in all that we do, but not really live for him. So he says, don't journey 
to Beersheba. And Beersheba would have been a journey. So it's interesting that verbs, the verb that's used is because Israel has to pass, the northern tribe has to pass through the southern kingdom to come to Beersheba. Don't travel there. But it's here, think about the meaning of Beersheba. Beersheba is the place that God would bestow living companionship upon his people. And that's what they wanted to commemorate, but that's not what they were living in. We can talk about how Jesus is our friend. We can say, I, you know, I'm a friend of God and all of that. But if we're not really being a friend of God, it's like going to Beersheba and saying, look, I'm a people of the presence of God, but you don't really live it out. See, so you can't get companionship from a place. You get companionship from a person. And that's what Israel was missing. So the issue is not that these places are bad. The places were good. But seeking the place was the wrong thing to do. The place was a memorial to the past. Instead of seeking new experience with God, people were just going back to the old place, remembering old events and old things that had happened, which is good. But they weren't making it a part of their life in the present. It was a way of getting close to God without really being close to God. They wanted to get close to physical proximity, but not with true internal dedication. And what people must have wanted to do really was to go and experience those realities, but not to have to surrender, not to have to stop doing the evil they were doing that benefited them so much. I don't know why we do that, but maybe it's because going to a place only demands that, um, makes demands that we can control. But going to a person... He's a fierce unknown, and he might require of us something we don't want to give. Are you with me on that? Sometimes we don't want to ask God questions because we're afraid of what he might say. We don't want to ask for his will because we're afraid he might tell us to do something we don't want to do. We don't want to get close to him because getting close to him is dangerous to living for self. So we're afraid, and we do these same things. They needed to seek God and not the places. It was the key to Israel's survival. We do it now. We do it with church attendance. Church attendance is good. And I want to hear. I want you to hear this loud and clear. I think it's important that we are a church, that we gather with the people of God. But if we're substituting the presence of God for a formal presence in the community of believers, and that's it, then we're missing something. The purpose of our gathering is to know God. It occurred to me as we're singing this morning, Maranatha, we want to say every service, Lord, come, come, come into this place. So a lot of people think if they can find their chair on Sunday morning in the company of the saints, they're good with God. But it doesn't occur that that might be a, a way of pushing God to the margins and it might be offensive to him. We, we don't seek him all, place, all, all week long, but we come into a place and expect him to be pleased with that. What we've done is we've sought a place, not a, perp- a person. Sometimes people do this with creative beauty. I can't tell you many times I've heard people say to me, I feel closest to God, not when I'm in church, but when I'm on the mountain. And uh, we can feel that sense of beauty of what God has created, but we need to make a distinction there. But Getting high up doesn't make us closer to God if our heart is far from him. You with me? Sometimes we can see beauty and equate it with, man, what a wonderful God we have. But that's not exactly the same thing as having an encounter with him. Okay, sometimes we do this with pilgrimages, holy sites, 
Maybe it's uh, Notre Dame or Westminster Abbey or the Hagia Sophia or the Temple Mount. And I'm not suggesting we wouldn't feel some kind of emotional experience by thinking about what happened there. But that's not the exact same thing as having an experience with God either. We might feel emotional, but you know, Daniel experienced God's presence in exile. So did the patriarchs. So have we, geographically speaking. We're not in Israel. We're not in the promised land. But we've had some powerful encounters with God. His Holy Spirit has come down into our lives. It's not about the place. It's about the person. And then... Um, sometimes with places of spiritual significance to us, like camps or revival meetings or our old church, etc. I wanted so many times to, when I went to camp, either as, I only went once or twice as a student, but when I went as a youth pastor, I was like, why can't we take what happened there and have that every Sunday? Well, I wondered why, why that can't be the case. And I've wanted at times to reach back into moments in my childhood and take a hold of a feeling that I had during a worship service. I used to sing worship songs when I was a kid, and I would just, sometimes tears would fill my eyes. There's beauty in it. You could sense God's presence in it. And there's times that I've wanted to reach back and bring that into my experience now. But I can't. And it wouldn't be the same if I did, because that's what God was doing then. And it's not necessarily what he's doing now. He's doing some powerful things now. Sometimes we respond to it differently at different ages. Sometimes it's not emotional. I can't always explain why we sometimes have emotional reactions and what we don't, but I do know God's a constant. He's good, and his presence is there all the time. Sometimes he manifests himself in ways in which our emotions take hold of, and we we start to feel a certain thing. But that doesn't mean he's any more there than he was before when we weren't feeling that feeling. So I don't, I don't understand all of that. I do know God's good. I do know he does things in people's lives that we don't always sense until after the, after the fact. Like Jacob, God was here and I didn't even realize it. So let's take some encouragement from the fact that maybe we don't feel a certain thing, but it doesn't mean the Lord's not here, he's present and so please hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. Um, what I'm not saying is that church attendance is unimportant, going to on pilgrimages and seeing things, that, that doesn't matter at all. Those things are great, but they're not the same thing as seeking God. They can be in coordinates with seeking God, but if we're to make a distinction between those, seeking God is something that is a unique pursuit, okay? And so when Amos writes this, he's telling them to seek God. You know, even as we try to build a community here uh, at Maranatha, we can't ever make it about just this is our experience and our thing. This has to be about God. It's an ironic fact that the churches that start to seek their own survival go into decline. We can't make that our pursuit. We can't pursue making Maranatha alone of a church. We can't seek to make this just a short. We have to make our primary purpose pursuing God. And if we do that, this church can be a great church. But if we don't do that, we're going to have a social club, and eventually it's going to fall apart. It's going to fracture. We have to put God in our pursuits. 
So I think the moment we start making it about the name, it becomes an idol to us. What's meant by seek? We're, we're drawing to a close here. Everybody, let's smile and be happy. What's meant by seek? Uh, in the New English Translation footnote, it says the following verses explain what it means to seek the Lord. And he, he goes into some of the following verses. The people were to, one, abandon mere formalism. Okay, we can't just go through the motions, in other words. Uh, if you find yourself going through the motions when you come on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday or maybe in your Bible study or personal prayer time, pause for a moment and say, Lord, I've been making it about the wrong thing. I'm just trying to get through this. Forgive me for that, and now I want to know you more. Pause and take a moment to pray that prayer. See if it doesn't change how you do things. They needed to abandon a distorted view of God. I think they had they had watered him down or they had uh, made him impotent. They had taken away his power, at least in their imagination. You can't really take away the power of God, but you can esteem him less than what he is. And I think that's what they were doing because in uh, the next chapter, they, they needed to prepare to meet him as he truly is. In Amos 4.13, he says, I am he who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, who reveals the thoughts to mankind, who turns down uh, to darkness, dawn to darkness, sorry, dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. It's talking about the name of God, the fierce God that cannot be tamed. They had a, they had a diminished view of who God was. And so the third thing they needed to do in seeking him was to repent and promote justice in the land. The first is abandon these things. And one of the things I didn't mention, they need to abandon the social injustice that permeated their society. And you, If you read through Amos, you'll see that. They need to repent and promote justice in the land, and they need to pre- prepare to meet him as he truly is. I think seeking God means for us, search him out and not a place or a past. We need to search him out and not a place or a past. To search is to, to follow after, to look for, to pursue. To search out means... Uh, we search out what pleases him and not what pleases ourselves. You see, seeking God isn't about a, a wish. I just really want to know him more. It's not that. It's doing everything we can to get into his presence. Now, he's done everything that's necessary to get us there. But you understand that in response to what he's done, we need to repent of our sins. We need to come to him again. And John talks about that. If we if we say we have no sins, we're, we're a liar. Then he says, uh, if you recognize you have sin, you can confess your sin, and he's faithful and just to cleanse you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And John wasn't writing in 1 John to unbelievers. Look at the context. He's writing to Christians who allow a sin wedge to grow between them and God. He says, we've got to take care of that. Sometimes there are things that we do that we're not aware of that may be wrong. I think that sometimes we can do things that are sinful Maybe we're, we didn't do it volitionally. We didn't do it uh, from our will like we intended to do that wrong, but it just kind of happens upon us. And temptation comes in in a moment, and we find ourselves having done that, and we didn't, hadn't thought about it, okay? We hadn't thought about it since then. God's grace is enough that if we come before him every day and say, Lord, if there's anything that I've done that's offended you, forgive me of that and teach me the right way. He will forgive us of those sins that we know, and those sins that we don't know, his grace covers those. So we turn to him and receive that forgiveness, remove the wedge, and allow us to really come to know who God is. 
And then we need to search out what's right by him, listen, and not what's right socially or culturally. We have to make, we're going to have to make some hard choices in these days and in the coming future because our world is confused. And a lot of people are content to go along with the cultural definitions of right and wrong because it's easy. It's easy because you don't have to take a stand. You don't have to be unpopular. You don't have to be hated, disliked, considered narrow-minded. I think we, everybody know what I'm talking about. There's cultural definitions of right and wrong. Like if you tell your kids that they shouldn't be sleeping with their girlfriend or boyfriend, the world would say, kids need to have their freedom in those areas. They need to sow their wild oats. That's not biblical. Come on, are you with me? And so we're taking cultural stand, we're, we're taking the cultural side or we're taking God's side on that. And we need to understand what God has clearly said about it. And so we have, if we're seeking him, we need to seek out what pleases him. If I'm to be true to the larger message of Amos this morning, then I have to say something to us in a capitalist economy. In our way of viewing money, don't be greedy. Don't be greedy. I'm not saying capitalism's wrong and socialism's right or socialism's wrong and capitalism's right. I think we have a great system for people who will, from an internal compass of morality, will do the right thing. It's a great system for that. But there, there can be a propensity towards greed if we don't check it in ourselves. And so in our system, I encourage you not to be greedy, but to think about those who are less fortunate. That's what uh, the overall thing in Amos, God was griping against them because they were abusing people for their own gain. And we have to be very careful that that doesn't become who we are. We have to think about others too. I'm sad to say that the people of Israel, they didn't listen to Amos or his contemporaries. They didn't seek the Lord. They continued to practice a form of religion, but they didn't make room for God to change them. And we know what happened to them. Um, the Assyrians came in, they laid siege on their cities, they took their wealth, they carried off their children into exile, they resettled their land with a vanquished people, and the people of God lived there, and they intermarried, and they lost part of their true identity. Um, and that's what happened, because they didn't obey God. What would happen to us? We don't want just, I don't want to come do this every week and it be formal, Mere formalism. I don't care if it's formal. Mere formalism. I don't want it to be ritual without meaning. Anybody with me on that? I want there to be reality to what we're doing. See, the way to revival is simple, but it's not easy. It's simple. It's uh, simple in its requirements, but doing the things that it requires is difficult because it causes difficult changes in us. We have to surrender. We have to trust. We can't just talk about faith. We've really got to trust God we're going to do it. And so I would challenge us. Maybe God is speaking to you through this message that you've just kind of been about. It happened yesterday, but there's not a fresh encounter with God today. And I don't mean that you have to come down here and wait at the altar till you see the stairway come down from heaven. But it would be good for us to say, Lord, I don't want just yesterday's experience. There used to be this song we sang back in the 90s um, called Anointing Fall on Me. Anybody remember that? Anointing fall on me, let the Holy Ghost power fall on me. Yesterday's gone, today I'm in need. Holy Ghost power fall on me. 
And uh, I think we, uh, it's good for us to recognize that. You know, manna, when it came, they could collect it for the day, and then it was rotten the next day. We need fresh manna in our spiritual lives every day. Jesus is still there. He's still good. He still does great things in our lives. But we need to seek him today and not just yesterday. The Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread. We're talking every day to God. Not just uh, we talked to him in 76, and that's good enough for mom and good enough for me. We need today's experience with the Lord. And so um, there's a couple ways we can respond today. Why don't we stand? That's, that's not one of them. But that would be a good thing to do. One is that if you've never asked Christ to be your Lord and Savior, today you could do that by simply saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm not lived for you. I've lived for myself. Jesus died on the cross and he rose again. He died for us. Christ died for us. Today the appropriate response to him would be to say, Lord, take my life. Forgive me of all my wrongdoing and use my life for your glory. If you pray a prayer like that and trust in Jesus from this day forward, you'll, he'll save you. He'll save you. Save you from yourself. Israel's um, promise was seek me and live. You want to truly live, not only in this life, but there's the life to come that comes through seeking the Lord, not seeking self. Death lies in seeking self. All of our kingdoms will spoil in time, but only his kingdom will endure. That's the first response. Second response is to Christians. You've had an experience with God, but you feel maybe a a slip has happened. A focus has changed. A direction has uh, diverted. And you recognize, and I need to stop going to the place and go to the person. Stop going through the motions and get back to a real heart of uh, encounter with God. And so uh, this, this, these steps, we consider that an altar where you can come and spend a few moments with the Lord in prayer. I'd like to invite you to do that if you um, would like to spend some time in prayer today, or you can do that at your seat. Father, we pray that you would uh, go with us this week and uh, tonight as we meet together again and and worship and pray. I pray we would seek your presence, Lord, and help us to be people of the presence of God. We don't want to be um, we don't want to be machines that work through some kind of formal process. We want to be um, we want to be friends of God, and I pray that you help us to to seek out that present relationship with you. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.